Jesus showed up. Nothing better than when Jesus shows up. I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but Jesus always shows up. He shows up because God's timing is impeccable. Everything that was in the process of transpiring was foreseen hundreds of years ago. Even riding on the donkey that should not have been a surprise to the disciples, but it was because they weren't expecting that. You know, we've all seen movies from time to time when they, the movie starts out with a clip from the end of the movie to capture your attention, and then they, you, you, uh, they have a subtitle which says something like, 24 hours earlier. That's kind of where we are in Matthew. It's Palm Sunday, and we've set up the scene, the whole triumphal entry, where everyone, including the disciples, and are excited about the entry of Jesus into Bethlehem, and they're, they're singing, and they're shouting, and they're, dan- they're having a great time. But a few days earlier, Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, and on the way, he took the twelve aside and said to them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. Now, I was amazed once again at the timing of our series in Matthew. Um, we just happened to land on this passage on Palm Sunday. In this passage here, Jesus is very clear as he speaks to the disciples. His, uh, there's no question about what he means. The, his words are simple. The thoughts are simple. Um, he wasn't speaking in parables. It's very clear exactly what he said, and that's exactly the way he intended it. Now, this is the third and the last time that he predicted the events of his crucifixion. The first one was back in chapter 16. The second one is in in chapter 17. And each time he added a few more details to it. Now, it's obvious to anyone who knows anything about the Christian faith that the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the central biblical revelation. That is... It is the most important Christian truth because it is the only one like it across the board. And so we're dealing with very crucial information, crucial material here in our passage. And there's an amazing amount of detail that Jesus gives. Now, the sufferings of Jesus Christ were no accident. They were not a miscalculation on God's part. God did not have an oops moment where he says, huh, didn't see that one coming. No, these events were no surprise to him. Him, He knew. And so he gives his disciples an amazingly detailed and precise accounting of what was going to take place in just a few days. In fact, if you remember, the first recorded words that we have of Jesus when he was in the temple, he said, I must be about my father's business. And the last words before his death, he says, it is finished. 
It is finished. It's very clear that he knew what he was about. He knew why he was here on earth. He knew every detail of it, and he knew what he had to do to finish it. And in his mind, he must have suffered a thousand deaths, as the saying goes. And now I think he wanted the disciples to understand as well. They were so tuned in to the glory of the kingdom, the excitement of the Messiah, the glories of the Messiah, those prophecies that that they understood. That was clear to them. It was a whole concept of the suffering of the Messiah that they didn't get, perhaps that they didn't want to get. They were looking for the Lion of Judah. They didn't realize that they needed a lamb. And as we look at the passage this morning, I want to look at the plan of his sufferings, the predictions of his sufferings, the extent of his sufferings, the reaction to his sufferings or the prediction of his sufferings, and finally the power of his sufferings. So first we want to look at the plan of his suffering. Now verse 17 starts by saying, now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. On the way he took the twelve aside and said to them, behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. Now again, in the Greek language, Jesus uses the word behold. In many of our translations, the English word behold is not there, but I think it's important. It's a term used to indicate a certain amount of surprise or unexpectedness. Guys, he was saying, it may be surprising to you, maybe even shocking to you, and you may not understand it, but we are going to Jerusalem. There is a resolution in his statement. There's a conviction, no discussion. In Luke's account in chapter 9, verse 51, he writes, and he, talking about Jesus, and he set his face to go to Jerusalem. It was a conscious decision. He was determined because he knew the time had come. Now, he had recently finished his Galilean ministry, crossed the Jordan at a, at a northern part of the, of the river, came down on the east side of Jordan, down to the area of Perea, and that's where he encountered the rich young ruler that we talked about the last couple of Sundays. And that's where um, then the, he then crossed over the Jordan again, going towards Jerusalem, but he'll go through Jericho, and we'll see that in a couple of weeks at the end of chapter 20, verse 29. And then uh, we'll start his long ascent to Jerusalem. Now, Matthew says Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. Jericho is about 1,000 feet below sea level. Jerusalem about 2,500 feet above sea level, so they've got to go up 3,500 feet up a mountain to get to Jerusalem. So they weren't just going up north, they were actually climbing upward. And you can imagine that they weren't probably alone, you know, Jesus and his disciples. Because when they were on the other side of the Jordan, the end of our chapter says that a great multitude followed him. This multitude is always following Jesus. Now remember, this was Passover time as well. And almost everyone was heading towards Jerusalem anyway. And this multitude of people happened to find themselves in the company of this wonder-working Jesus, this amazing teacher and healer. What could be better than that? And so Jesus, his disciples, and this crowd were all moving towards Jerusalem. And Jesus feels he needs to let his disciples know what was going to happen in just a few days. 
Now, I'm assuming they must have just started their trip out of Jericho and hadn't started climbing yet because Matthew says, On the way, he, Jesus, took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. We're about to head up the mountain. Now, this news was unexpected on the part of the disciples. We know that because in the parallel account in Mark chapter 10, verse 32, it says that the disciples were astonished and afraid. Astonished as in confused, baffled. I can't believe he's doing this. Astonished. Being shocked at his decision. Why in the world would he do that? Afraid because they had heard the scuttlebutt that the chief priests, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, all were actively plotting to kill Jesus. Not only were the religious rulers antagonistic toward Jesus, but Jerusalem was also the seat of the Roman government. And this could easily be seen as a revolution starting, especially Jesus coming in with these crowds, and it probably wasn't going to end well. So they were afraid. In fact, the word Mark uses is phobos, which is where we get the word phobia from. Extreme. They were having some major, major anxiety here because of the confusion of wondering why in the world Jesus would go to Jerusalem now. When he knows that people that hate him and want to take his life are there, this is not going to end well. But Jesus is resolute in his decision because, and we come to, back to that first point of our, ours, this is the plan. This is the plan. We go to Jerusalem. It has to be. There is no other choice. Why? Because it is written. In Luke's account, in chapter 18, verse 31, we record Jesus' reason that they have to go to Jerusalem. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He says we have to go because the prophets have already uh, told us about it. It's God's plan. So Jesus going to suffer is no accident. It's a culmination of the redemptive plan of God. The way that God can buy back his people by paying that price. And if you go back into the Old Testament, you'll find passage after passage after passage predicting all the elements of Jesus' life. In Zechariah 9.9 says that he would enter into Jerusalem. Psalm 2, that he would know the fury and rage of his enemies. Zechariah 13.7, that he would be deserted by his friends. Zechariah 11.12, that his betrayal would be for 30 pieces of silver. Psalm twenty two sixteen that he would be pierced on the cross, Exodus twelve forty six and Psalm thirty four, that none of his bones would be broken, Psalm twenty two eighteen says that his garments will be divided by casting of lots. Psalm 69 says he'll be given vinegar to drink. Psalm 22 again, he'll cry out in the pain of distress. Zechariah chapter twelve says that they'll they'll pierce him with a spear. Psalm 16, and he will rise from the dead. Psalm 110 even says that he'll ascend into heaven. It's all there. So when he's going up to Jerusalem, he's on schedule. He's on target. It's the plan. You know what's fascinating? As you look at Scripture in this regard, not only was all of this prophesied to take place, but we find that the whole flow of the Old Testament with its types and symbols and images and pictures demands that the Messiah die for the sins of the world. 
See, the death of Jesus Christ is the primary event in history, the act of redemption, and is also the primary event in the Bible. This profound truth of redemption has been referred to as a scarlet thread. You've probably heard that. The scarlet thread that's woven through the whole Bible. Let's think about that a minute. It starts way back in Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve sinned. There's a separation They feel cut off from God, so the first thing they do is they hide themselves. Then they immediately become aware of their nakedness, and God comes and clothes them. But in order to clothe them, He clothed them with the skin of animals that had to be deaf. And so some innocent animals had to be slain to make clothes for them. That's a very important thought here, because if we pay attention All the way through the Old Testament, we'll see that guilt and shame and separation are covered by sacrifice. It's an essential truth that began in Genesis. Sacrifice is the only way to deal with guilt and separation from God. That sets in motion the truth that then demands the ultimate Passover lamb. In Genesis chapter 2, we find a second great and profound element of sacrificial truth that's taught. Remember that God gave Abraham a son. His name was Isaac, beloved son, in whom all of his hopes rested. And he was, he was to be the seed from, from whom the generation of people would come. And an Abrahamic promise was all bound up in this one son, Isaac. And as God comes to Abraham and says, I want you to sacrifice your son. I want you to kill your son. You can see the killing of all those hopes and those dreams and all the things that God had promised and planned. And yet Abraham is absolutely faithful and committed to do what God says. So he packs a bunch of wood on Isaac's back and they start up the hill of sacrifice known as Mount Moriah. Isn't it interesting that Jesus also carried the wood of sacrifice on his back as he started up the Mount Calvary? They get up there and Isaac puts the six down and then Abraham puts Isaac down on, on the altar It's all prepared. He lifts that knife up, ready to plunge it into the heart of his beloved son. And God stops him just in the nick of time. And he hears a ram over in the thicket. And he goes over, takes a ram, and sacrifices the ram. And God spares his son by providing a substitution. That's that second profound truth of redemption. There is a substitution. God will provide a substitute. In fact, it says in Genesis chapter 22, verse 14, that Abraham named that place, the Lord will provide. So we learn that sin and shame and guilt can only be dealt with by sacrifice and that God will provide that sacrifice as the substitute. Now as we move a little further in the story of God's unfolding redemptive plan, we come to the 12th chapter of Exodus and we get the third great truth in relation to that redemptive sacrifice. The setting is Egypt. You remember the people of Israel have been in captivity by the Egyptian and God's bringing his people out and freeing them from the captivity and sending judgment on the Egyptians. And it says that then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. The animals you choose may be, must be year-old males without defect. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood in the basin, and put some on the uh, blood on the top and on both sides of the door frame. None of you shall go out 
of the door of your house until morning. And when the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top inside the doorframe and will pass over that doorway and he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. In other words, you will be delivered from judgment by making a blood sacrifice. Now that repeats what we learned in Genesis chapter 3. That sin is dealt with by sacrifice. It also repeats what we learned in Genesis 22, that the sacrifice can be substituted for the guilty person. And then it adds a third and very important dimension here is, um, in that the sacrifice must be unblemished, must be pure, without defect. And not too long after that, God gives Moses uh, the law with all the intricate, complex elements of the whole sacrificial system. So that sacrifice for those people became a way of life every day, every day, every day, every national feast, every act of worship, every approach to God was all based on sacrifice. The only way to worship God was through sacrifice. Sacrifice was essential in order to worship God. And that brings us to the fourth profound truth of redemption, that is that there will be no worship of God without sacrifice. None. So God had to provide them a sacrifice to cover sin, who was a substitute, who was unblemished, who could redeem His people, and provide the kind of sacrifice that could open the way of worship forever. And that's why when Jesus died on the cross, and you'll remember that, the veil of the temple was torn in two. And the sacrificial system was over because Jesus was the one final sacrifice that created that openness to God from which we could now worship him from that moment onward without ever having to offer another sacrifice. Isn't that amazing? So you see, if you look at the Old Testament, it isn't just verbal prediction. The whole flow of it is that there is a need for a sacrifice. That's what the whole Old Testament was saying. And so Jesus says, we're going to Jerusalem. That's been the plan from the very beginning, from Genesis onward. The disciples figure, yeah, we're going there. We're going for the Passover. What they didn't know or understand was that they were going with the Passover lamb. So he's right on schedule, sets his face towards Jerusalem, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 3, that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to what? according to the Scriptures. And we read in 1 Peter 1, verse 10 and 11, uh, concerning this salvation, Peter writes, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of God in them was pointing when He predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. Even the prophets saw the sufferings and glories that would follow. Unfortunately, that's, that's why so many Jews of, of the day and of today have missed Jesus as the Messiah because they're, they're looking for the glory. They're looking for the Messiah yet to come. They don't understand the suffering and the fact that He's already come. It's hard for them to understand Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53 and Zechariah that predicts and, and prophesies all of that because you don't see, if you don't see the suffering, you don't understand Christ. That wasn't anything new. You remember when Mary brought the baby child to the temple to be blessed, to be dedicated to God? In Luke 2, 25, 
tells us there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. What in the world is that? That is with the waiting of the promised Messiah. That's what the consummation of Israel is, is referring to. And after he blessed him, blessed the little baby Jesus, you remember his words? He said to Mary, This child is destined to cause a falling and rising of many in Israel. Then he said this to her, And a sword will pierce your own soul too. He was predicting much suffering, and only a mother's heart could understand the suffering that Mary knew. And so from the very beginning, it was this way. And you remember when John the Baptist first saw him in, in John 1.29, he introduced Jesus' ministry by saying, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And in Revelation 5, we see Christ exalted, and one of the elders introduced Jesus to John. And he says, see, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. And John looked, and John writes, then I saw a lamb. He was introduced to the lion of Judah, and John says, I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne. He had to suffer as a lamb before he could be exalted as a conquering lion. So he's going to Jerusalem because that's the plan. He's going to make sure that plan is fulfilled. And the second thing I want us to look at this morning is the predictions of his sufferings, his own predictions. Now, understanding all that the Old Testament prophecies, Jesus adds his own right here in, in these verses. Listen to verses 18 and 19 again. We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and teacher of the law. They will condemn him to death. And will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. He's actually predicting each of these details. This is, a, this is another proof of his deity. We, we talked, we've talked about this as we went through uh, Matthew. The proof of his deity, because only God can know these things. Only God can tell the story before it happens, Right? Only God can make history before it even occurs. This is God in human flesh. Who, who else knows all of that? I mean, who else can give all these uh, incredible details, betrayal, handing over the chief priest and the teacher of the law, condemning to death, handing over to the pagan Gentiles where he'll be mocked. Matthew uh, and Luke add, and I'll, 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 um, I'll be spit on. How, how does he know that? And then I'll be flogged and then crucified and then I'll rise again. These are bold proclamations that he's giving to his disciples to look back on, to look back on and remember and not lose sight of the fact that he is indeed God. They'll need to have that confidence. He is no ordinary man. He knew how many husbands a strange woman had at a well. You remember that? And even the man that she was living with wasn't her husband. He knew a conversation before a conversation occurred and responded to it. He told his disciples to go get a donkey. And he told them to have this conversation that would happen when they asked the guy for the animal before the guy even was asked. He forecast the fall of Jerusalem in Matthew 21. By these predictions, not only was he giving them information of what was going to come, but he was proclaiming who he was. He's, he calls himself the Son of Man. It's 
one of his favorite terms for himself. It's used 80 times in the gospel. It's a term of his humiliation as he humbled himself and became a man. He humbled himself, Paul tells us in Philippians 2, and it also incorporates the exaltation that we were, we've been singing and, and uh, praising about this morning. Out of that humility, God exalted him to the highest place. He says, the Son of Man, first of all, shall be betrayed. He'll be delivered over, this is uh, the quote from Matthew, he will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. Delivered over means a betrayal. Betrayal because it was Judas who turned him over. And he was turned over to the chief priests. In the New Testament, you had the high priests, kind of the, the, the number one priest. And then you had the chief priests who were kind of uh, had responsibility over various regions in the area. And they were all members of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, kind of like the religious supreme court of the area. So Jesus was going to be turned over to them and to the teachers of the law, commonly known as scribes. They were basically the lawyers who interpreted all of the Mosaic law. And nobody could do anything unless, until you got their interpretation. And this made up this body of people, the council who ultimately condemned Jesus to death because he so threatened the security of their system. And Jesus saw all this ahead of time. The fake mockery of a trial which would end in condemning him to death. And that's exactly what happened. Now this Jewish Sanhedrin couldn't actually kill him because the Romans had taken that responsibility out of their hands. They had no right to do that, so they had to give him over to the Gentiles. Verse 19, that's what Jesus predicted as well. And after the Sanhedrin condemned him, they could condemn him to death. They just couldn't put him to death. So after they condemned him to death in that false trial using trumped-up charges, they ultimately wrongly charged him with speaking against Caesar. Because if they got the Romans riled up, then the Romans would uh, get involved. And that's how, they that's how they delivered him to the Gentiles, to the Romans, because only the Romans had the right of execution, so they took him over to Pilate who couldn't find anything wrong with him. But he succumbed to the pressure, finally surrendered to crucifying him because basically a blackmail by the chief priests holding Caesar over Pilate. But in the meantime, they had taken him and mocked him, put some kind of a staff in his hand, crammed a crown of thorns on his head, put a purple robe around his shoulder, spit on him and mocked him. Then they flogged him, they whipped him, ultimately crucified him, all of which he predicted. And of course, since we know the rest of the story, he rose from the dead. So we have the plan of his sufferings. We have the predictions that Jesus made of his sufferings. And the third thing I'd like us to look at is the extent. The extent of his sufferings. You might be saying, oh, Pastor, I thought we just talked about that. No, not really. Uh, when we think about Jesus' sufferings, we usually think about the crown of thorns, the nails in the hands, the whipping that he went through. But there was actually so much more. And, I, and as I began studying this, I found something interesting. When, when Scripture talks about the suffering of Christ, the word is used in the plural, sufferings, with an S. In 2 Corinthians 1.5, it mentions the sufferings of Christ. Philippians 3.10, the fellowship of His sufferings. 1 Peter 1.11, the sufferings. 1 Peter 4.13, the sufferings. In Luke 24.26, He suffered many things. Hebrews 2.10 tells us that His salvation was made perfect through sufferings, plural. 
I think there was much more than the physical suffering going on. Not to diminish the physical suffering. That was horrible. The pain of the 39 lashes that would often expose the internal organs, the loss of blood, the nails in the hands, and ultimately the prolonged death by suffocation. But there was much more to the suffering of Christ than just the nails on the cross. And I was drawn to Isaiah chapter 53, which describes the extent or perhaps the dimensions of the suffering of Christ. We first see the suffering of rejection in verse 2 there in Isaiah 53. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. I don't think he was a blonde, blue-eyed hunk that many of our uh, uh, movies uh, portray him as. He was despised, verse 3 says, despised and rejected by mankind like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. The first image that came to my mind was was the hunchback of Notre Dame. No no one wanted to look at that. This indicates that Jesus may have actually been ugly. That kind of messes with your mind, doesn't it? Why else would they hide their faces from him? He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. This would be an ongoing pain. He was familiar with it. He was looked down on, held in low esteem, perhaps teased, bullied as he grew up. I don't know. But Isaiah seems to be indicating possibly that. He was despised. That's a strong term. He was hated. Remember who this is. This is Jesus Christ. This is not someone who's ever known this until the incarnation, and not one who deserved it. He's worthy of glory and honor and praise, and here he is despised and looked down on. And then you have the suffering in verse 4 of bearing others' sufferings, of carrying others' sorrows, and, and, and being punished by God for that. Surely, verse, three, uh, verse 4 says, Surely He took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered Him punished by God, stricken by Him and afflicted. All of God's wrath that mankind deserved for all the sin and rebellion against God was brought down on Jesus, and He cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Then you have the suffering of physical pain, which we touched on, being wounded, beaten, pierced. Verse 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. He experienced being punished by God to accomplish the peace for someone else. Then you have the suffering of divine loneliness. In verse 6, in the same chapter, you had that lonely statement, we all like sheep have gone astray, each of us turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. God had to turn his face away from Jesus because he could not look on sin. Then in verse 7, you have the incredible suffering of oppression and affliction and silence. He couldn't even speak. He couldn't defend himself. He can't push, push them away and say, stop, I am the Son of God, back off. That would have been our reaction probably. He was oppressed and afflicted, verse 7 says, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. 
He had to suffer in absolute silence. He has to keep his mouth closed. The suffering of knowing you're right, knowing that you're just, knowing that you're, here, uh, you're holy, knowing that you're pure, knowing that you are good, and not being able to say it. And there's a suffering of prison, the suffering of a false judgment in verse 8. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. He was arrested. Yet who of his generation protested? There was a suffering of death. Same verse, for he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people, he was punished. There was a suffering of being buried and the suffering of innocence. In verse 9, he was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Innocent. And if things couldn't get any worse than that, there was a suffering of knowing it pleased God to do this. Verse 10, Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. The Greek word that for the Lord's will here is, is a word literally means to delight in, take pleasure in, to desire, to be pleased with. This pleased God. He took pleasure in this. Can you imagine? If you look at it that way, it's overwhelming to try to conceptualize the extent of the sufferings of Jesus. I think that's what's on his heart this day as he sets his face towards Jerusalem, starts heading up that mountain, and he was already suffering internally. The agony of all this in anticipation of what what was about to happen, and he had to tell his disciples Son of man, he told his disciples, will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teacher of the law. They will condemn him to death. They'll hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And on the third day, he will be raised to life. Listen to what we read in Psalm 41.9. Even my close friend, someone I trusted, one who shared my bread, has turned against me. Who's he talking about? It's Judas. Yes, This was a suffering of being betrayed by a friend, one who was a part of that inner group of 12 disciples with whom he walked and talked for three years, affirming his love for them, how he cared for them and and trusted them. He was not only betrayed, he was betrayed with a kiss. The overwhelming suffering when someone close to you violates that intimacy and seeks to destroy you. Once he arrived in Jerusalem, he's going to re-experience the suffering of rejection. We started with that one. Oh, it'll start out great. We read about that earlier when people would lie in the streets with palm branches and excitedly be singing, singing praises. The crowds, it says, went, went ahead of him, and, and those that followed shouted, Hosanna, the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. But very shortly afterwards, they're screaming out, crucify him. This was heavy on his heart that day as he began heading up towards Jerusalem and he unburdened his heart to his closest followers. So what were their reactions to that, to these statements? What were their reactions to the predictions of his sufferings? What did they think about? How how did they perceive this? How did they react? Well, verse 20, which is the one immediately following this, right after Jesus bears his heart about the upcoming events and the agony that he's, he's suffering internally, verse 20 says, 
Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him. What is it you want? He asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit on your right hand and the other on your left in your kingdom. (laughs) You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Seriously, that's what you're asking me right now? That's how they reacted. They didn't come and say, Lord, tell us more about these sufferings and why why are you going to be going through those? Tell us about your resurrection. That's the coolest thing ever. That's exciting. What's going to happen? No, they came with their mother. Hey, we want to be on your right side and your left side. They didn't even get the message. They wanted a king. They still wanted a king. And they kept missing the fact that first, they first needed a savior. And that comes with suffering. Let me end on a positive note. (laughs) We need to see the power of his sufferings. At the end of verse 19, on the third day he will be raised to life. Suffering is not the end. Jesus rose out of the grave three days later. Psalm 16, verse 10, promised that you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful one see decay. I'm not staying there. All the sufferings that Jesus experienced for us brought him to the point of destroying the power of Satan and giving us that final victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is a law. But thanks be to God, he gives us a victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. What an amazing statement he made to the disciples. He would conquer death. How could they miss that? How could they miss that? How could they not ask about that? But despite the fact that all this seemed to go right over their heads at the time, Jesus still stuck to the plan and suffered and died for us. But later on, later on the disciples did understand. They got it. It came through. Peter says in 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. They got it. Aren't you glad? (laughs) Aren't you glad? We, We couldn't get there without this. Couldn't get there any other way. So back to Genesis, when Adam and Eve sinned, they were separated from God. What, what reconciled them? It was sacrifice. And when God ordained the elaborate sacrificial system in Israel, he was saying, you don't come to me unless you come by means of a sacrifice. And so Jesus had to be offered the just, that's him, for the unjust, that's us, that he might bring us to God. Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, Jesus being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
That's what Debbie alluded to when she says, because we know the end of the story, we know the other end of all this suffering, we can exalt him. I'm going to ask the worship team to come because we, he is exalted, the king is exalted on high. So let's stand and praise him as the worship team comes and leads us. <laughs>